Welcome to the final episode of the official International Rugby League podcast series for 2019, brought to you by Chasing Kangaroos. I'm your host, Michael Carboni, and on this episode, I had the opportunity to chat with the CEO of International Rugby League, Mr. Nigel Wood. But first, let's go through some of the results for the final round of the International Rugby League season. So in Port Moresby, a couple of upsets. So the PNG Orchards, 20-16 to 16 over the England Lionesses. So that's a drawn series, and it's actually the first win ever for the PNG side. So really exciting times for them. Uh, in the men's game later that evening, the PNG Kumbh, they absolutely devastated the Great Britain Lions, 28 points to 10. So Great Britain, they go 0-4 and four on this tour. Uh, and of course, the upsets have continued this year uh, with the Pacific Nations coming out very strongly. Uh, guys, in Jacksonville, massive news for the Cook Islands who qualified for that final World Cup spot. They defeated the USA 38 points to 16. There's only one try in it with 10 minutes to go, but the Cookies, they ran away with it at the end and deservedly they are into their World Cup. So the World Cup men's uh, final 16 looks like this. It's England, Australia, Fiji, Lebanon, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Tonga, Scotland, Ireland, Italy, the Cook Islands, and for the first time ever, Greece, the first time ever, Jamaica, and of course, Wales and France as well. So it's going to be an exciting 2021. In other news, the Golden Boot has been announced. So the men's winner, Roger Tuavasa-Shek from New Zealand, and the women's winner, Jessica Sergis, uh, the Australian Gillaroos uh, Centre. So Really proud to have been a part of that uh, that voting process and two very worthy winners this year. Uh, that caps off our 2019 international season and haven't we seen some upsets this year with some T2 nations certainly making it clear that they are capable of mixing it on the field with their T1 rivals. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry for more in 2020 and counting down the days to 2021. Now, at the time of recording, we are expecting the new International Rugby League World Rankings will be announced shortly. And by the time you listen to this, you may have seen them. So stick around for the end of the show because I'm going to try and explain how the ranking system works. Uh, But now... We asked you for your questions via social media for my chat with International Rugby League CEO Nigel Wood, and you asked hundreds of questions. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one as much as I did. So here it is, Mr. Nigel Wood. All right, I'm here with Mr. Nigel Wood, CEO of the International Rugby League. Nigel, how are you, buddy? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Mate, I've been very excited about this one. We've had hundreds of questions on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Plenty of people have plenty of questions to ask you and I've I've had the job this week of grouping those together and consolidating them and I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners uh, and followers who have who have submitted their questions. Hopefully we get around to as many of them as we can in, in a roundabout way because obviously I'm combining some of them but Nigel, if you're ready to go, we can get straight into it. Of course. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by, I guess, finding out a little bit about you and your love for rugby league, how it began, and in particular, particular your love for international rugby league. Where did that start? Oh, I think, uh, gosh, what, what a, I don't know how long have you got. I, I, was, uh, I, was, um, I started following the sport when I was a young boy, five, six, seven years old, and uh, my uncle used to take me around the best game Whatever it was in in the uh, in the part uh, in the part of Yorkshire, so one week I'd be going to Leeds or Halifax, Wakefield, Hunslet, Bradford, Bramley, any of those places, and uh, I think from that I used to uh, you know I, I gained a love for the whole of the sport rather than just any one aspect of it. And yeah. you know, I used to stand there and. Uh, 
can stand there outside the dressing rooms and collect the autographs and, and collect the match day programmes and just generally felt really at home with with the sport and and I think quickly from that you saw this the kind of these magnificent touring sides like the kangaroos and the kiwis that used to travel over to uh, the united kingdom in the in the 70s uh, uh, with all of their flair and the the kind of the different look and the da- and the kind of war cries and the war and and I think it just enlightened a, a fire inside of me that that it has never gone out and I think that you know rugby league has been I've been very privileged in my life to have rugby league as an ever-present, really, in every aspect of it. Whether, you know, whether I was a failed player or whether I uh, was an administrator, you know, I've just had rugby league running through the middle of it. And to be honest, I feel very privileged and very blessed because of it. It is incredible, and uh, it's a beautiful sport that we're a part of. So it's fantastic. Um, you mentioned some collections or co- some collectible items. So tell me a little bit about that. What would be your most prized possession? Oh um, well, actually, I've got a I've got a match day program uh, from a match between York and and the All Golds in 1908, the very first oh, no way. Uh, international tour. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, it, you know it's got Delhi Messenger and Lance Todd listed in the team sheet, and uh, I just you know I just believe that the heritage of the sport is so important. I think that if we lose if we lose touch with what's gone on in the past, it, we're crying shame. And I think that, um, you know, when I, when I happen upon items such as that, I, I try and get them and uh, and keep them. I've got, I'm a bit embarrassed really. I've got a phenomenal kind of normal club program uh, collection, which I've, which we put in the University of Huddersfield as a, as a national archive for the sport, because I think it's, I think it's important that we, that we, that we retain these and we, we catalogue these so that people who want to study how we've reached the point that we've got to have an access to, you know, prima facie documents and those match programmes. So there's about 25,000 items there, which is a considerable amount. My wife's delighted that I managed to put them in the university, by the way. Uh, <laughs> she's, she's happy to get uh, them out of the house. Yeah, yeah, she is, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've still got a load here that I've got to find, find a way uh, of, of, of getting somewhere else. But, you know, I think it's... You know, you know, some people trivialise things like that, but I'm not one of those. I think it's really important, and um, got a lot of international material as well from the 40s and 50s. Some of the, you know, the very first tour after the World Second World War, the um, the 1946 tour to Australia by the Great Britain side. You know, full collection of the match programmes from there. So it, it is a, you know, it's a source of resource for the for the sport if anybody wants it. Well, it's always great to look back at the history, if only to learn from maybe some of some of the lessons and mistakes and see what we can do in the future. I understand uh, I, was, I was talking to a few of the guys at the International Congress in Sydney uh, probably a couple of months ago now, and they were telling me that the original International Rugby League minutes included things like expanding the game in, into America and things like that, so the sort of things that we're still talking about today. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, what we can look towards in the future and what we've learned from the past I guess how, give me an understanding of how international rugby league is growing and and what we can do to grow even more you know the right uh, I, I did put up the uh, I did put up the agenda from the 1952 um, international board um, uh, meeting uh, which was if you remember before the very first World Cup which yeah. was in 1954 and uh, it, I mean it is revealing how many of the items that were listed are still items that would be on the agenda I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing you know such as how do we grow the game in the North in North America and what is the right cycle for World Cups uh, and how how 
many internationals should be played uh, in, a, in what is a, a crowded club um, uh, calendar. So they, 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 those are issues that have still been that have been talked about for some time and remain talked about. And I mean, and I, I suppose that in a way answers your question. What we have to do, I think the kind of the, the, the major issue for International Rugby League is what role does it play in the overall calendar for the sport? I think most people who look at our sport think that um, International Rugby League represents a terrific opportunity and one that has not been properly utilised over the last 70 years. And Certainly. I don't want to be I don't want to be critical of any you know, previous um, post holders or any previous regimes. But when you look at the fact that um, uh, that meeting in 1952 was was uh, uh, talking about and forecasting and discussing uh, the first World Cup in 1954, um, uh, and you question what have we done with that since then? Um, you know, it was rugby league is the was the second sporting code to run a World Cup after association football or soccer, as it's known. And um, and and we, I think it's probably only in the last twenty years that we've started to really make sense of the World Cup as a as a as a concept and a tournament. Uh, and we're beginning to make some progress. And I do know that in twenty one, uh, the organisers in twenty one have got a wonderful um, year of uh, and celebration of international belief to look forward to. So we are we are we are playing a bit of catch up. I'm afraid and. Um, and we need to continue to uh, invest in that concept, but also look at how how do we grow the number of nations that can legitimately compete internationally. And I think that's why the past month has been so um, so refreshing for those of us who believe so strongly in international belief. It's been an incredible month. We've had some some big upsets and you know some disappointment for Great Britain, but some great joy for Tonga and Papua New Guinea and nations like Fiji. It's been incredible to watch and I know I myself I'm very excited for the next international season 2020 I can't believe it's all over already uh, and can't wait for the 2021 World Cup but I do want to look into the future and a lot of our listeners have asked about this 10-year plan that we keep hearing about so I want to know if you can briefly outline what we can expect as part of this over the next decade. Yeah, um, it's still it's it's still being actually formulated, but fundamentally, uh, we've committed to a World Cup cycle every four years. So that's 21, uh, 25, 29. One of the big decisions that we have to um, make is whether to um, retain the concept of the men's and the women's and the wheelchair all taking place around this in the same year and around the same event. Um, we're looking at that from a commercial perspective to understand uh, which is the, the right way forward. I think that um, I think that there are, there are examples to point to in other sports where originally um, things are run, you know, events are run in a coordinated way, but then they, they, they separate out as they mature. I think yep. soccer is the biggest example of that, you know, where the, the, the Women's World Cup is is, is now a, a standalone event. Um, but there's also a, a very strong argument that, one of our USPs as a sport is the uh, inclusivity and the ability of uh, to, of a sport to run men's and women's and wheelchair concurrently is actually um, a USP that that would attract commercial interest. And I know in twenty one, there's some there are some terrific plans to play women's and men's at the same venue at the same time to to showcase the um, the women's game on the same stage as a men's game. So that's one of one of our kind of fundamental decisions to be taken is do we keep those consolidated as one 
a central offer or do we split them out and run them over different years? Uh, and then we've also got, uh, the, of course, the World Cup of Nines, which is a great uh, new introduction in 19. And there's a four-year uh, cycle there, so we've we've agreed with the um, ARLC that that will be run again in 2023 uh, in Sydney. But there is an option to look at nines more fully and and to look at whether that cycle should be four years. But then there's a number of other um, tournaments that international rugby league should be taking responsibility for, and I'm talking about Masters Touch tag uh, emerging nations uh, uh, also the uh, any other um, aspect of you know police uniform services um, students there's any number of um, genres of the sport if that's the right word that we have to develop the right rhythm in terms of competition I would like to see an international tournament take place every year every single year uh, rather than just once every four years or once every two years and I think that's an important rhythm to try and get into our sport but it need not necessarily always require the participation of the uh, elite professional athletes we have to find a way to make sure that their 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 playing balance is is properly respected with the professional clubs that employ them Uh, and also we've got to find room for regional competitions you've just seen a wonderful Oceania Cup uh, it's the first time it's been uh, run in 2019 that is uh, that offers great potential for the future as does a similar uh, the the similar tournament that takes place in Europe and equivalent ones in in Middle East Africa and the Americas so the current the current kind of cycle is that we'll be running uh, global events in the in the odd years so 19, 21, 23 and we'll run regional events in the even years that's a, that's a simple way to kind of explain but there is still a bit of work to do to be absolutely candid there's still a bit of work to do to to make sure that we get the right rhythm to that so it's a draft proposition at the moment Okay, beautiful so 2020 we're going to see uh, European Championship MEA, Americas and of course Oceana and then we just need to I guess see if we can build on that and make sure that it's sustainable every every two years is that correct? That's right. That's entirely right. Um, but there is also, of course, we, superimposed on top of that is there are still uh, those nations that want to find room for what we would call bilateral matches. Yep. So yep. you know, the, so next year in 2020, of course, England will be playing the Kangaroos, and that's really a matter for uh, those two nations. So they clearly can't compete in the uh, in the Oceania Cup. The Australians can't compete because they're competing in in, in this other tournament. So that, those are the kind of pressure points that have to be navigated through to make sure that the nations um, get what they think they need, but also that competition structure and tournament, whether it be uh, regional confederation or international, has has the right structure to it so that people can understand it. Does sort of cementing this 10-year plan help us commercialise and develop broadcast partners and things like that for the International Rugby League? I would go beyond saying that does it help us commercialise. I think it's an absolute prerequisite. Yep. Um, you can't. I think you. I think you struggle to be taken seriously with whether it is with broadcasters or with commercial partners if you can't um, point to the route map that exists uh, over the over the kind of ensuing five years or ten years. There is. Because because there isn't a lot of international rugby league versus, uh, vis-a-vis the amount of club rugby league that exists, you have got to take a multi-year approach to it. I yep. think you've got to you've got to be able to say, well, in this year we're doing the following, and the following year we're going to do this, and then you've you've got a chance to excite both broadcasters 
and co potential commercial partners. And that's that's one of the reasons why there's still a bit of work to do on actually, to use your phrase, cementing down the um, actual calendar because we, ne we need to listen to what um, our commercial partners and broadcast partners are are saying in terms of what works for them so there's, there's still a bit of consultation it's still a bit of uh it, there's still a bit of work to do over the next three to six months but fundamentally i think that at that stage we'll have a very clear idea that of what works best for international rugby league and all genres of it all genres we've got to remember it isn't just about the elite nations playing one another it's also about the depth the depth of the the depth of international rugby league. there's nations playing that that we know are not going to win the world cup in the next you know five years or ten years but they still need to be given a competition structure that works for them so it's a you know there's a there is a bit of depth and there is a bit of breadth to the work uh, but it will be absolutely guided by what commercially works for for, for the for the market because unless we earn our own keep, we'll never be in a position to to unlock its the potential of the sport. Definitely, let's let's talk about that depth a little bit. So, what future markets do you see? potential in that might surprise some of our listeners? Uh, well, I'm not sure what will surprise, but I mean, everybody, <laughs> everybody is aware that over the last um, decade, there's been, a, there's been a, a great advancement of the sport in the Pacific Islands. Uh, and uh, we have one of the reasons why uh, we went to a lot of trouble and took a lot of risk uh, um, to invest in the concept of Oceania Cup is, is to give those nations a chance to participate in a structured competition every year, something where the, there is a, a meaningful prize and a trophy lift and people can say, well, we're the best team in this uh, region. And that's taken a lot of energy and a lot of um, emotional investment and, and financial investment to get it away in year one. Uh, but we think that, that if we're ever going to grow our World Cup, we need more competing nations. So we need to get to a heavyweight nations, each of whom has a chance of lifting the trophy. And at the moment, you know, if we're all being honest, until Tonga's reemergence Tonga's emergence recently, it's been Australia, New Zealand and, and England really. So we have to get to eight nations, um, because that's you know that's when you begin to build the critical mass. So there's the there's the Pacific region. Uh, secondly, I think everybody's aware about the uh, the opportunity opportunity in North America uh, you know a lot of sports look at North America as as the kind of holy grail of of markets to try and break into uh, we know rugby union are making uh, efforts to to open up North America and of course the the British competition the RFL have, have um, introduced Toronto Wolfpack and they they are also considering um, applications from Ottawa and from New York. So yep. there's something exciting going on in North America. And I think that we have to just remind ourselves that, you know, rugby league, and, and this is obviously, you know, a personal view, but rugby league, I think, is is the simpler and safer uh, version of rugby to play. And if you're trying to introduce a version of rugby into a market where it's not necessarily a, a staple offer, then the kind of simplicity of rugby league, uh, I think, works really well and allows us an opportunity to leverage our way in. And I, I mean, in addition to that, we are talking to people in the Middle East uh, and also the Far East about whether there are opportunities. Now, again, everybody says we want to move into China and we should move into China. But that, first of all, that's easier said than done. And secondly, that you've got to ensure that there is a level of demand for what you're doing. Otherwise, it becomes a... Um, 
a painfully expensive uh, initiative. So, so uh, what we said in our last strategic plan is that we were looking for two new G7 markets um, that we want, where we wanted rugby league to be strong. Um, and if you look at those nations, you know, you probably we probably need to think about what more we can do to France. Now, that's not a new market, yep. but it's a market that is uh, is not. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a nation that's not performing to the standard that I think they would probably expect to do. Uh, we spoke earlier on about the 1952 um, board meeting. Of course, the original International Federation was just four countries, New Zealand, Australia, Great Britain and France. And, and whilst three of those nations remain in the most powerful group, you know, France, I think it's fair to say, hasn't. And I think that if I could close my eyes, I'd love to see a fully powered up French nation. So there's, it's not just about new markets, it's also about improving existing countries as well, if we possibly can. But we can't do everything. We can certainly try, but it's obviously a slow process. And it is good to see Tonga up there. It's good to see four nations that, let's be honest, are capable of winning the World Cup in 2021. And hopefully there's more to come from there. And it leads me to a question about tiers. So a lot of people were asked this question and we often see our rugby league nations grouped into tiers. So can you define the tier system? Let us know why we have it. And and what a lot of people want to know is why are Tonga still in tier two? Um, the, 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 the concept of, by the way, I think that the concept of tiers is up for discussion. I don't think yes. there's, uh, I don't think there are any sacred cows. It was, it was introduced only a couple of years ago because we relaxed the eligibility criteria. Uh, and, but what we wanted to make sure is that there wasn't uh, complete free movement between Australia, New Zealand and uh, Great Britain sorry England uh, and so therefore they would they were designated as tier one because they have a separate eligibility criteria so 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 uh, so even if you are eligible for both say England and uh, Australia you couldn't if you play to one you couldn't swap over and play for another that was so it's it's purely and simply to differentiate between those nations where the federation wanted to deliver a more enabling and more uh, empathetic eligibility criteria so what what people now rather disrespectfully call tier two nations so there's a slightly more relaxed eligibility criteria than there is for tier one but to be very clear uh, you know i think that the the from a personal perspective the whole concept of tier one and tier two i think is 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 potentially outdated and i'd like to move to a situation where nations are nations uh, if we do have to be um a little bit more selective about eligibility we should find a different way of dealing with that i'd rather kind of remove this concept of tier one and tier two it's interesting because you know developing the concept has allowed the likes of Tonga to become a powerhouse in the game because guys like Tamalolo and Fafita they could switch and and not worry about the future ramifications of that they could always switch back if they wanted to but now you'd like to think that they'll be there for the rest of their careers representing Tonga they absolutely love it and they've done great things but there is talk that you know it is too easy for players to switch national allegiances now um, and it's good to hear that there's you know, there might be talks to change that in the future. I think that's fantastic. Um, another question. So in episode one of this podcast, uh, Danny Cassangian spoke about the importance of GACE, so the Global Association of International Sports Federations membership. And I guess people want to know how far are we from earning membership and why is that so important for us as a sport? Well, let, let's start with the second of those. Why is it so important? Yeah. The 
in in many in many emerging nations recognition by government by their own domestic governments is conditional upon them uh, upon our sport being recognized by a multi-sport agency such as gifts so uh, so if 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 rugby league starts in the Cameroon or wherever it starts uh, uh, and they go to their national government for some financial support uh, because most most governments have a sports budget you know no, no matter where they are uh, then the first question they ask is well who recognizes you can you point to anything that any any multi-sports agency that recognize you uh, such as the International Olympic Committee for instance yep. uh, or the Commonwealth or the Commonwealth uh, Federation any and so getting recognition by a multi-sport agency Agencies is a bit of an enabler for many of the national federations. So we we've approached GAFE some time ago, um, and it wasn't without its complications. Um, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that um, the uh, because Rugby Union are an existing member there, that has complicated some of the dialogue and discussions. Uh, we were we've been advised that we need to have forty accredited nations that are recognised as where rugby league is recognised as a, as a fully legitimate and authorised sport by the uh, national federation that's what it will take for our membership to be progressed to full membership rather than observer uh, so you'll see you'll probably immediately see from that there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation um, you know the reality is we need the national federations to recognise rugby league to allow us to demonstrate to gifts that we are we're a formal accredited sport and yet gifts are saying uh, they're also saying the national federation is saying you need gifts to recognise you to actually allow us to recognise you so it does <laughs> become a bit of a, it becomes a, a circular complication uh, and one of the reasons that gifts actually introduced observer status was to try and unblock this this clearly unsatisfactory situation so we're working hard on getting to 40 members i think at the last count we're at 23 or 24 and danny works hard to support all of our uh, new nations or newer nations to achieve that status. So it's very important for the reasons I've, I've set out, but there's still quite a bit of work to do over the next two years. Sounds like there is quite a bit, but I think we can get there and it seems to be moving quickly or faster than it has in the past, that's for sure. So, Nigel, uh, 2019, we've seen a number of disputes between players and their governing body. So, of course, I'm talking about Lebanon, Tonga and France. And our listeners have been very keen to know what are or what can the International Rugby League do to solve each of these. So let's start with Lebanon. Yeah, um, well, specifically with Lebanon, we do have, uh, we are uh, facilitating a mediation process and that's ongoing as we speak. Uh, so one of the IRL's officers is facilitating that and both parties have agreed to participate with a view to trying to find a consensual uh, outcome. But I think that we probably need to broaden it uh, to talk about the kind of fundamental underlying issue, which yeah. is how is how does the relationship work with uh, between players and um, also overseas diasporas and then federations that are based in 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 the home country? Because I think that's the common feature in in many of these disputes, not with France incidentally, but the, the common feature with Tonga and with Lebanon and when there have been other disputes have been as the difference uh, the differences that occur between uh, the diasporas in 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 Australia and Sydney and those and the national federations being uh, being run in the host nation and I think 
one of the areas for us to look at and where we are working is, is to try and strengthen and improve the uh, governance rigor in those federations to try and move people along and to and to strengthen those kind of governance policies i think that we have to remember in many parts uh, of the world, in many of these federations, uh, the actual uh, national federation has been run either on a volunteer basis or an amateur basis yeah. or you know people that are putting their, their time and effort in uh, as best they can. But there isn't the resource there to, you know, to actually have sometimes full-time professional executives. Whereas in, the, um, in, in, in Australia in particular, there are communities that are, are, are very passionate about their ancestry, who want to see those nations perform at the highest level and they're, they're anxious to assist. And I think really the common factor needs to be that we need a, a mutual respect between the groups. At the end of the day, uh, the International Rugby League recognises the National Federation and should only recognise the National Federation. Yep. But we would encourage the National Federation to use all of the resources and expertise and skills that are available to it. But there has to be, that has to be a mutually respectful process. Uh, and I think that... It's a, it's a reflection of where we are as a sport internationally. I think if you look at other sports, if there was a a problem in, in a country in, say, soccer, uh, whatever that problem may be, they'd just be excluded from international competition until such time uh, as they got their act together. You know? But we don't have the luxury of being able to do that. We have to work with the communities we've got, and and I, you know, and, and we should as well because it's of where we are in our development. So we will roll our sleeves up and try to assist uh, and we do do that, whether that be Tonga and or uh, Lebanon or anywhere else where we're asked it. But really, the long-term solution is a maturing of the general governance around international belief. That's where we have to try to get to. Um, we don't run individual nations. And I mean, if you're talking to Ralph Rimmer or Todd Greenberg about their domestic competitions, they would emphasise that they don't run the clubs. They, you know, the, you know, the governing bodies don't run the clubs. They just rely on the clubs to run themselves. And it's the same internationally we don't run the nations they have to run themselves but where they need some assistance we will try and assist uh, but in the long run I'd rather we weren't busy in these areas at all because I'd rather we just had excellent governance and excellent arrangements whatever the circumstances yeah I agree and that certainly answers the question for Lebanon and probably Tonga as well um, you mentioned France is a little bit different so how so explain that situation to us and, and what's what are we doing to try and solve it well, I think the, the the issue with France probably is different because, and and and, and by the way, it's, um, you know I, I haven't got a, a forensic analysis of what's going on in France, and I haven't spoken to Mark Palanque on it yet. But the reason France is slightly different from uh, Lebanon and Tonga is because it, it's not necessarily um, a, a dispute between a national federation and. Um, uh, and uh, and an overseas diaspora, effectively. So yeah. it's really what's going on in France um, that we need to understand. And I think that the challenge for France is slightly different. Um, I think the I think most fair-minded people would look at France and say, "Look, we, you know, it's a G7 country. It's been in international rugby league since its very inception. Since the the concept of an international rugby league was 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 uh, was uh, morphed out of what was." Before that, the Imperial Rugby Board, it was just Australia, New Zealand and Great Britain. So France came along, Paul Barrier uh, um, instigated the World Cup uh, and delivered the trophy. So they have been uh, in the middle of International Rugby League for 60, 70 years. 
Um, so they are, they should be a fundamental mainstay of it. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons, I think the issue we have to understand with France in more detail is one of the reasons the British game um, invited Catalan Dragons and more recently to lose into their competition yeah. is to strengthen the French national team. So I think that, I think it is a fair challenge to say, has that team actually been strengthened over the last 12 years uh, in return for that um, considerable investment by the British game? I think when you look, uh, and it's not the same, I accept fundamentally it's not the same, but when you look at when what was then the Auckland Warriors were added into what was the Australian competition, uh, I think New Zealand have gone <clears throat> excuse me, have gone from strength to strength from that position onwards. So I do think we do need to understand that uh, a bit better. But I don't think that is the same as uh, with Lebanon and Tonga. Definitely not. And and the other one is Greece. So obviously a different situation. There's no dispute between the players and their, their governing body, but more so the rugby league governing body and their country's governing body. So do you think that the World Cup qualification for Greece could help alleviate some of the issues they're having or what steps are being taken uh, from from your end in that regard? Well, you would certainly hope so, wouldn't you? I think that, you know, it is a, you know, I, I think in all my years, it's, it's probably the most ridiculous situation that you could possibly find, really, where uh, the Rugby League Federation, according to the government in Greece, is, is part of uh, uh, modern pentathlon. Uh, I don't think in any other part of the world would you expect it to be governed or managed by uh, modern pentathlon. <laughs> I think that it's 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 bordering on the ridiculous. I think there are individuals in the middle of that that are making things uh, complicated. Um, the International uh, Rugby League Organisation and the European Federation have been working with uh, Greece Rugby League to make sure that the World Cup qualifiers could take place. And the fact that they have won through in spite of that adversity is a terrific um, commendation to their commitment to the cause. And I do think it would, I do think it, it has to continue to throw a spotlight onto what I think is a, a, a completely unsatisfactory state of affairs. I almost think that our sport internationally in the last couple of years is growing so quickly that it's 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 going to cause disputes like this you mean it's you know just speaking to you on it you know you look at what's happened in Tonga and like you say a lot of the board or the original governing body were probably you know amateurs or um they they all of a sudden they had a world class rugby league team to look after and with that I guess has come some issues so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in particular in those nations over the next 12 months or so uh, but hopefully uh, we start to see some peace because I think a strong Tonga, I know France and Lebanon, there's certainly potential and, and who would have thought Greece would be in a World Cup uh, anytime soon? So it's fantastic news. And I, I think it's a fair point to be, uh, you know, I think that um, I think what you're really saying is there hasn't been too much to fight over in the past, really. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but as we start to get our act together and begin to develop uh, international structures and competition that is is meaningful and commercially viable, all of a sudden, um, you know, we're, we're a, you know, it's it's a little bit a victim of its own success, really, and 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 that, that this, these are the growing pains. And and Danny is uh, excellent in in matters of kind of local governance. He comes from that background, and we couldn't have a better person um, actually stewarding these um, uh, disputes to to a calmer place. I think it's. 
I'd like to wish you know that none of them existed, but I suspect they will, and I think I think they will, and if not, these other ones will appear as as we continue to grow. So it, it is a regrettably a, a, a growing part of the, the business. I'm afraid. Well, speaking of a growing part of the business, let's talk about nines because it was a very popular topic of questioning amongst our listeners, and many believe it's a great way to help grow our game in new and developing nations. So tell us, you know, we'd ha- we had a successful Nines World Cup in Sydney. The, the on-field product was amazing. Is there a plan in place for the Nines for the future? A plan's being worked up as we speak. Uh, we've got a number of um, interested parties. Uh, I think I think everybody can recognise um the role that nines has for our sport. Uh, not, I mean, a lot of sports have gone on to to promote modified versions of their their full contest, and nines re- represents that for us. But actually, it's a very faithful um, uh, um, uh, uh, reference point for the, the full thirteen aside game. So it's a, it's a it is a mod. It is a, a replication of of what you watch when you watch thirteen aside rugby league. Only there's a bit more space and it's a bit quicker, and the skills are actually going to over time. I think they will they will they will morph into being slightly different yeah. athletes. But but nines is absolutely uh, one of our focal points uh, because of everything you just said. Um, it allows newer nations to actually be. Uh, on the same field as some of the established nations and actually not embarrassed by, you know, one-sided, lopsided score lines. Uh, it's a, it's simpler to get quality nines teams away because you don't need 25 athletes or 20 athletes. You can, you actually, you only need 14, 15, 16. Uh, I think we have got uh, an opportunity to create uh, a global nines, and I won't use the word circus because that's not fair, but a, a global nine circuit. And I think <laughs> but the thing here is we've got to make sure that we don't necessarily always call upon the same elite players to play in every tournament. So I think that one of the um, one of the uh, one of the factors in in the nines in 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 this year that's just taken place is we couldn't properly organize qualifying competitions because you know you know because it was almost it was too short notice and we just wanted to get the tournament away uh and i think that by the time 23 comes around there has to be a qualification route for nations to play in in the nines in the same way the uh, there is for the 13 aside and it's a similar phenomenon by the way with the women's world cup you know i know you probably want to speak about that later but fundamentally uh to use a phrase you've used we have this international rugby league has grown so significantly over the last two years three years that it's actually sometimes it has to catch its breath and catch up with itself you know and we didn't have a we didn't have a proper nines qualification process but that won't be an acceptable position in 2023 so i think there's two two strands to this so i think we've got to we've got to make sure that the, the actual world cup cycle is commercially viable with proper qualification tournaments but separate to that i think there's room for nines to be played every year it, it, on a global circuit but it might not just involve the um the elite players from the two professional competitions so you know it's, it, but it is massively important to us that's exciting do you see nines ever being a part of a commonwealth games or olympic games one day 
Well, it was played around the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014 and on uh, and in Queensland in 2018. Um, so, but it wasn't within the embodied, um, uh, you know, the, the, the embodied formal games. Uh, that's as far as we could take it. And would, uh, but I do think one of our objectives. It's a bit like the GAFs conversation. Yeah. One of our objectives is to play rugby league at formal multi-sport games, and um, I do think that. You know, I think that we don't have first mover advantage in in this. We, you know, rugby union have got the jump start on rugby league, and and that means you know that that finding a way to put rugby league in might be more troublesome. But I do think with both the women's game and most importantly with wheelchair rugby league, that is a terrific opportunity to um, progress into multi sport games. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned union because one of the comments that uh, I heard quite a bit at the nines this year was that. Nines is very similar to 13s. Like you you watch both versions of the sport and you know that they are from the same family. Whereas rugby sevens and 15s, they look like they're very different. Um, They're almost different versions of each other. In fact, sevens rugby is probably closer to to rugby league in skill than, than rugby union. So it's very interesting. And I think, you know, if we're introducing nines to a place like America, and that's a question we got a fair, fair bit of, you know, would we consider taking a nines world cup to the USA? You know, they're, they're, they're growing in leaps and bounds in rugby sevens. Maybe nines is a good way to get them, you know, finally get us expanding rugby league in, in North America. I think that's right. I think what you're, what, what you're describing there is the fact that 15 aside rugby union has got certain technical dimensions that are almost peculiar to that and over rugby league's uh, story from the past 100 and you know 20 years um we've actually rugby league has removed some of those technical aspects you know it's it's got a it's got a, a, a simpler play of the ball and it's you know it moves the defensive lines back uh, to create some space to play uh, doesn't have the technical requirements of a, a line out and uh, over the last decade or so it's had it hasn't had many technical aspects to the scrummage so at, at the end of the day it's not a surprise for you to proffer a view that says the short-sided game is still a, a reflection of the 13 side game mm. and that might not be the same and I think that was the I think that's the point about going into new markets mm. I think that the point I was trying to make and, and uh, it was that the less of the technical aspects, the more obvious it is to a spectator or a new participant what's actually trying to be achieved. And, um, you know, when you talk about rugby, it's running, handling, contact, collision, passing, sport. That's what it is. That's what that's what really I think people want to see. And that's why rugby league is so enjoyable to both play and watch and, and is easy on the eye, really. Um, I'm not saying we get everything right because I don't think we do, but, um, but fundamentally, I think that's our advantage is that you know we are everybody can see what's trying to be done and um, uh, and I think into new markets that's tremendously uh, significant tremendously so yes nines presents a terrific opportunity in North America so let's talk about nines as an asset because we know the world nines world cup or we is owned by or the asset is owned by international rugby league but you mentioned that Obviously, the NRL ran the World Cup this year, and you mentioned they'll be running it again in 2023. So how does that work if the asset is owned by International Rugby League, but the competition or the tournament is run by the NRL? It works the same way as every other 
global event, really, that yep. the rights holders, or whoever they may be, whether it's Olympic Games, Football World Cups, Rugby Union, or Rugby League, or cricket, you know, the rights holders is, are the world governing body, and they contract with a local delivery partner, uh, whether that be a government or a national federation, to run it on their behalf. And it's no different from what's going on in 2021 um, in, in the north of England in particular, where, you know, the, 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 those tournaments belong to International Rugby League. They are the International Rugby League tournaments for men's, women's and wheelchair. and um, uh, But they're being run by um, a company that is owned by the Rugby Football League, the RFL. So, you know, one of the things that I, I think the, your underlying point is is probably we could we could do a better job of clarifying who is taking what responsibility mm. for what part of the tournament. Uh, so there are issues on branding and there are issues on um, uh, on on you know the, the the rules and regulations of tournament that we probably didn't get right uh, and we need to improve. And again, uh, that was probably that was was because it was it was done you know relatively quickly and at short notice. So this, our second iteration will tidy those things up considerably. The International Rugby League, or, or the, Inter the RLIF Federation, as it was formerly called, although it's been around for a number of years, it's, it's actually a very, it's, it's quite a young organisation. Mm. It never, it didn't have an employee at all until um, David Collier was appointed as CEO, I think in 2014 or maybe 2015. Uh, and for a long, uh, for three years of his tenure, he was the only employee. Uh, and now we're beginning to build some executive um capacity uh, that probably wasn't there. So we are, although we can point to meetings of uh, minutes of meetings in 1952, uh, you know, it was a virtual organisation and it's only really beginning to take shape with any kind of executive substance over the course of the last two years, three years, so, or, you know, five years. So, you know, we are we are catching up with where we probably should have been some years ago. It's a good point and I think a lot of people or many people listening out there wouldn't even know that point. So the, the organisation is obviously growing and it obviously needs to because the sport is growing very quickly. And we mentioned the NRL uh, when we're talking about nines right, uh, world nines rights, um, so I want to talk a little bit about that because plenty of people have asked questions about the relationship between the IRL and the NRL. So it's obvious that the National Rugby League is an absolute powerhouse in our sport, and not only are they financially the most powerful rugby league entity, but arguably the strongest domestic rugby competition in the world. And when I say rugby, I am talking about both codes. The NRL is the best out there. So what is the relationship like between the International Rugby League and the NRL and, and how, how do you find balance uh, when organising things like Lions tours and Kangaroo tours? Look, I think the relationship is 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 very strong with all of our federations, but in particular our, our our big federations. And and you're right, the NRL and the RFL are the two uh, biggest federations because yep. they run professional leagues. And I think international rugby league has to be very mindful of that. But at the same time, it can't be subjugated by it either. It's got to be mindful of the fact that, as you say, the NRL is the most powerful economic entity in rugby league. Uh, but it's still the ARLC is, is it just a member of the International Federation. I would argue that um, that all sport is is improved by having a vibrant international dimension to it. And I think actually these shouldn't be mutually exclusive positions. I think they can be collaborative positions. I think if people if 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 club owners and national federations want to grow the value and wealth into their uh, domestic competitions, the best way to do that is to attract new eyeballs 
and use corporate sponsorship into the sport, and that is easy, most easily achieved uh, by by vibrant international competition. So I don't actually think they should be mutually exclusive. And I think that whenever I, I speak to either club CEOs or chairman or the NR, or the NRL executive, they all properly understand that international league has a, a terrific role to play in actually growing their competition. Um, and uh, I certainly think that um, there are still, still some discussions. I think we should pay tribute actually to the NRL because in the absence, it dovetails with the previous question, because um, in the absence of a, a powered up international federation, the major responsibility for promoting international league fell to mm. Australia and and the RFL and and latterly New Zealand. We've almost you know, yeah. those na- those organisations have we've been reliant upon it, and those nations have have stood in. And so uh, I was speaking to Todd probably eighteen months ago, and 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 he used the for, he used the phrase this there has to be a transition into a fully maturing. Uh, um, structured international federation and regional confederation with Asia Pacific and I think that that has to take place and is taking place and there has to be good faith on both sides and I'm sure that there is um, and that covers things like broadcasting arrangements and also access to players and um, but these are it's an evolution over a period of time so you know you know I think the relationship with the NRL and with the RFL is is really strong because I think at their hearts they know that having a powered up international game is in their own best interest. It's funny, a lot of the underlying answers to these questions are have something to do with growing pains or, or growing issues. So it's, it's true, you know, the NRL have had to run their end of the world and so have the RFL in the past. But now, as you say, the IRL is growing, you know, in terms of, in terms of I well, guess... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think all self-respected sports, you know, need to crown... You know, world champions. You know, you need to crown yeah. the world champion. That's what. That's what. Whether they be the world champions at nines or world champions at thirteens or world champion at women's, whatever it is. You know, our function as an international federation is to crown world champions. And I think that the decision that rugby league has to take, you, if you look to some of the American sports examples, and by the way, American sport is is you know, obscenely uh, uh, profitable and well-run. So you can't point to them and say, well, that's not an example to follow, because it may well be. But when you have something described as the World Series, it's just played between two American mm. uh, countries, you know, from time to time. It, you know, it, it is challengeable. Whereas if you look at cricket and at rugby union and at, uh, and, at, and at football, you know, there is a process by which you are crowned the, champ- the best team on the planet. And I think that is the uh, credibility of that and the integrity in that process is better and stronger if you've got an independent agency that's that's yeah. anointing the champions. You are the champion. You are the champion nation this time. And I think that that's the bit that we have to get to. And I think that, you know, you're right, that it is a growing pain, but I think that or these are growing pains, but I think that we're well on the route to that. And I think that with goodwill... Um, that we can achieve that. So when we have situations where, say, for example, this year, so the the RFL uh, announced their Lions tour and that they'd be coming down to the Southern Hemisphere uh, and playing a number of nations, uh, and the ARLC say, well, no, we're not going to be a part of that. We're, we're going to have a kangaroo tour next year instead. Where does, uh, where does the International Rugby League stand on that? Do you just let the kids argue amongst themselves and work it out or do, does the IRL step in and, and sort of assist in situations like that? Well, 
we, we, we have got no jurisdiction over bilaterals. That's the that's the I think one of the I think one of the points of clarification that this developing and emerging uh, international rugby league has had to wrestle with is what are we responsible for? And it starts from we are responsible for running global tournaments. That's what we're responsible for. You know, the European Federation is responsible for running the European Cups. Asia-Pacific is beginning to take responsibility for running its its regional competition, the Oceania Cup. Uh, so the International Rugby League, or as was the Rugby League, Inter- uh, the Rugby League National Federation, as was, uh, is responsible for running global tournaments. So yeah. if if so that doesn't put us in the middle of um, whether Australia should play New Zealand, should play Great Britain or not, that, that is a matter for those two nations. And I think that's that personifies, if you like, or that exemplifies some of the confusion that's gone on over the past fifty years. You know, the International Federation is is, is and rightfully has been conflated with just the nations because. Um, it has been just a nation. It hasn't had an identity of its own. Yep. And as it moves to a separate identity, it has to take ownership of its own patch of work and its own jurisdiction. So, you know, you know, would it be preferable had Australia played Great Britain? Probably. Um, it, why didn't it happen? That's a matter for the RFL and the ARLC to address. Yep. Uh, I think our... The, the our position is we just like to see and love to see international rugby league uh, being played as often as can be practically possible without encroaching too much on the two underlying professional leagues. It's interesting. There are so many moving pieces to the puzzle and it must be like a juggling act at times for you guys. I want to talk about another one of those pieces, which is domestic rugby league and and how it affects international rugby league. So we've recently had Shane Richardson. He's the general manager of the South Sydney Rabbitohs. He's come out and suggested his plan, which I've seen versions of this plan before. It's nothing new, but it's certainly interesting where he says that we should have 22 rounds in the NRL season. And I think that would probably reflect quite well in the Super League, uh, which would enable standalone State of Origin weeks and more rep rounds for International Rugby League. Could this sort of thing become a reality? Uh, well, I would hope so. But and, and look, I know Shane very well and I think he's a great operator and a committed internationalist and it's, and it's terrific to hear him articulating those kind of positions. Um, at the end of the day, the... NRL calendar is a matter for the NRL or the ARLC to decide yeah. uh, what that looks like. We've got International Rugby League has got no ability to influence that or to 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 demand anything, and it's the same in the Northern Hemisphere uh, with the RFL's competitions, the Super League and the Championship. There's a lot of uh, a lot of international players. Um, are actually playing beneath Super League level in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah. so. Um, you know, so it's back to this 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 grand bargain, this giant puzzle, this matrix of you know, complications, which is what is the what does the optimum calendar look like? Um, at the moment, we have agreed windows for international rugby league, and they are effectively in February for international club rugby league, which is why the world club competition um, appears then, and that's something that we think we should be encouraging more. Um, as an interesting uh, expansion on on the club brands, so that takes that's that's scheduled to take place in February. We have the weekend of uh, whenever the um, Australians Origin match takes place on the weekends. That provides an opportunity for all those athletes that are not uh, playing for Queensland and New South Wales to actually play international 
Super League, but that's just one weekend. And then we have the period post uh, the two grand finals where we can concentrate on international rugby league. Now, that's, that's the current grand bargain if that's the right expression um but a- anything is possible but we, we do have to be mindful that you know a lot of the uh wealth into the gdp of the sport comes through club competition so yep. you know the international federation needs to work collaboratively with the, the the major leagues to find an optimum outcome as opposed to to try and kind of push something through that um uh, is inflammatory but at the same time i would hope and it is a sincere hope that people recognise that international rugby league is good for players and is good for clubs and uh, is good for the profile of the sport when many other um, uh, sports are, are taking full advantage of a vibrant international calendar. Definitely. And some of the clubs you've mentioned already, so you've spoken about the New Zealand Warriors, the Catalan Dragons, Toulouse. Um, we've got Toronto, Toronto Wolfpack in the Super League next year. We've got... Um, clubs from New York and Ottawa potentially moving into those English leagues. We've got the Hunter, uh, PNG Hunter side in the Queensland Cup. We've got the Caviti, uh, Caviti side from Fiji uh, coming into the New South Wales competition as well. Could What sort of effect could this domestic expansion have on the future for International Rugby League? Well, you would hope it, it has a very positive uh, effect, but but there's no guarantees of that. I think the when we spoke earlier on about you know Catalan and Toulouse's mm. inclusion in in, in the uh, British uh, competition structure, there's precious little evidence of that strengthening the uh, French national team at the moment. Without being disrespectful to anybody concerned, so um, I, I don't think it's a slam dunk, nailed on certainty that just because you put overseas teams in, and similarly, um, you know Toronto have been in the um, uh, in the British hierarchy for a period, the competition structure for a, a period of time, and yet the Can- Canadian national team uh, uh, haven't qualified for the 21 World Cup. So I think that um, I, I think that it should facilitate an improved national performance. But there's no guarantees if the decision making behind the inclusion of those clubs isn't isn't structured and properly thought through. And that means really you need more coordination because, of course, club owners don't necessarily put the development of international rugby league at the top of their list. They they're actually want, not surprisingly, to lift trophies and to, and to increase profile and to, you know, and to possibly make money on the back of their investments into, um, into the sport. So it's, it's not necessarily... Uh, top of their list to say, well, what does this mean for our, the national team that we are in the territory that we're operating in? So that I think I think there does need to be a bit more joined up work there, and that's not easy to do because if I was David Argyle, I'd be saying, well, look, my priority is to play at the highest level, and if that means, I, you know, uh, and to play at the highest level and to win at the highest level and to attract world class athletes that, that break down barriers and, and provide column inches, who can argue with that? Um, so we, have, we do have to find a way of making sure that. The great, those great initiatives and those great investments, it's often on, on an individual basis, it do have some dividend for international rugby league, but um, it's not necessarily that it will automatically follow, as I've just pointed out. Yeah, Toronto is interesting because, we, you know, we speak about the Warriors and the new side in Fiji and PNG, and these clubs were sort of created to, to help development, which is already in place, whereas Toronto is completely new. It's a new brand and they've quickly become one of the biggest brands in rugby league, which is exciting. I don't, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way. Like we can do things a number of different ways. 
Um, and it's just going to be very interesting to see what Toronto means for our sport in Canada. At the very least, you'd have to think that there is an interest for the sport and people are keen to see at least what this Sonny Bill Williams character is up to next year. I think that's a really significant uh, point. I think that y- you are right. I think that when the Warriors came into uh, the, the Australian competition, it was to provide a focal point for all of the community and development rugby league that was played there anyway. And I think that's really significant. And it's slightly different in Canada. You would hope that what happened with New Zealand could be replicated in France, but it isn't at the moment. But almost in reverse, if you've got, Sunny Bill and Toronto, and they are, you know, moving up the list of important sports franchises in that great city. That one of the pieces of work that needs to happen is that more rugby league gets played in that um, immediate orbit and that there is a branch of the club that is saying we are going to take responsibility for how much rugby league, whether it's... Because we all know that if you actually play rugby league as a youngster, then you're more likely to engage Mm. engage with it as a fan. Exactly. You you, you develop a lifelong... So it's good business. It is good for business. Whether it figures in one, two and three of the strategic priorities of the club ownership is a different issue, but fundamentally, mm. it is good for business. But, you know, that it just makes the point, really, that there are different reasons for um, professional clubs to emerge. Well, let's change the, the subject slightly because I know we're running out of time, uh, Nigel. But, uh, well, let's talk World Cups because one of the most common questions that we have gotten in the last week was when can we expect a decision on who will host 2025? Yeah, and that's a piece of work that the executive are fully focused on. As you'll be aware, last year there was a preferred bidder status to take it to the United States. Following the Denver test in the middle of last year and, and, and some unsatisfactory elements of uh, of that match, uh, we couldn't proceed with the uh, the promoter that was intending to to run the 25 World Cup. So, you know, we, we are retendering that process. We're going to market on that. Um, I, I referred earlier in the conversation to the some commercial work that the International Rugby League is doing about its appropriate structure and the rhythm of international tournaments. Part of that is where is where is the best opportunity to place the 2025 World Cup? We always made the commitment that we would announce the next World Cup before the commencement of the previous one. I can remember in the recent past when you know you play a World Cup and the first question you, after the trophy being presented, the first question you'd be asked is, you know, when we're we going to play the next again? One? Yep. <laughs> Yeah, because, because we hadn't we hadn't got our you know our, our act together. That certainly, you know, that happened in two thousand, and then again in two thousand and eight, we didn't know at that stage uh, where we'd play again. And with the Olympics being in Great Britain or the United Kingdom, then there was complications. So uh, our commitment is that before before the ball is kicked in the twenty twenty one World Cup, we will have clearly placed it but there's a piece of work to do beforehand uh, I, I would hope that in the first half of next year 2020 uh, we'll be in a position to explain the process more fully once we've discussed it with our commercial advisors in terms of how we take this forward but fundamentally I think we've got a terrific opportunity in 2025 uh, to look at how uh, but, but not just the men's but the women's and the wheelchair yep. is presented to the world I think I think We've discussed a number of times in this conversation about how quickly the world's moving, and particularly yeah. which nations are participating. Uh, one of our one of our dilemmas this year with the Women's World Cup is we we committed to an eight team World Cup uh, some years ago, uh, even before 
some nations actually had women's teams, you know, yeah. uh, and 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 we've all it's a, you know actually the progress of of women's rugby league has overtaken the organisation competence of international rugby league. So, you know, we we, we we shouldn't be in a rush. I'd rather get the decision right than get the decision done early. So, um, uh, we've got to think about what the size of the women's competition could be and where it could be held, whether or not that should be run at the same time as men's and wheelchair. And so, there's a number of moving parts here, and uh, I would hope by the middle next year would be in a position to firm some of those up and I certainly want to uh, our clear objective is that before we kick off in 2021 we've announced where it's going to be in 2025 It's uh, it's funny you mentioned the Women's World Cup because there were nations like Fiji for example who were upset at not qualifying and not having a qualification process but the other side of that is like you say things have moved so quickly but when, when submissions were asked for Fiji hadn't even played a game yet so we weren't sure what level they would even be at on the field, so it's actually exciting times. I, I, you know, I'm sure that we'd be probably looking. When I say we, I mean International Rugby League as a whole. We'd be looking at having more than eight women's teams in 2025, and it's interesting. I didn't even think of that. You know, you could essentially have separate World Cups for men's and women's next year, which would obviously, you know, be a factor in the decision process for. I guess who's hosting. Um, I guess what what a big question we're getting is: Is North America? done and dusted is there any chance of it being in the states in 2025 or would it be more into the future i suppose no 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 uh, there's every chance but i don't want to overstate that when yeah. i say there's every chance that's not some kind of subtle hint that it's going to go to north america yeah. but north america is definitely under consideration you have to have organizations to work with it's it to, for it to the you know for your flagship event but you know there's no there's no prohibition on North America just because of one bad experience with yeah. the previous promotion by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, whether that's 13 aside or nines or or, or or a different competition is is still to be discussed. That's it wraps back round to the whole point of um, this the commercial evaluation uh, of what is the best structure um, without repeating some of the answers from earlier. It's yeah. about we need to understand whether we run everything together or we separate it out and give different nations like South Africa a chance to run competitions that you wouldn't possibly yeah. uh, running 13 aside men's rugby league in South Africa yet, and I'm not prejudging anything, but there may be nations, perhaps rather than picking on any individual nation, you may think that um, there may be nations that can put their hand up and run a tournament but it might not be the men's 13 aside tournament which actually is the um, which is the major commercial property of international league and the thing that funds everything for the next four years so those are the kind of discussions that are taking place as we speak but certainly okay. nothing nothing has been ruled out at all so in a nutshell we're not sure where 2025 is yet we should know by next year and we have options on the table. Is that correct? Yes, Okay. that's correct. Excellent. All of that. <laughs> um, let's talk about 2021. And I've had some questions about the Emerging Nations Championship. So there was talk, we, there's talk about a women's Emerging Nations in 2021 and a men's. And we've recently heard that the men's uh, would be cancelled from the 2021 Festival of World Cups and potentially be happening at a different time. Can you tell us anything about that or is, is there much information about emerging nations at this stage? Yeah, I think I, I think it's slightly harsh to say it's been cancelled because it was never actually... It was All that happened is um, 
the organisers in 2021 were anxious to um, to run what we previously called the Festival of World Cups around the uh, the main events at the end of the year, and we just wrote to nations to say. If we pursued this, yep. uh, w- which nations would put their hands up? To, uh, sort of who would want, what wish to compete? Remember, uh, for many of the festivals, it's a participant pay model. There's still a participation fee that has to be paid. So you can't just put it on and expect people to come. You need to check that there's a demand for it. So we, there was never a commitment to do anything. It was just, we just wanted to explore what the appetite was for it. Uh, we're also very aware that we ran this very successful, uh, uh, well, the IRL and together with uh, New South Wales Rugby League ran a very uh, successful Emerging Nations in 2018. And we are trying, This is, it's back to a, the similar discussion about whether or not we can run international tournaments every year, some genre or other. And there's quite a strong feeling that Emerging Nations should come out of the shadow of the, uh, uh, the the main World Cup cycle and actually have its own cycle of every every four years. So p- potentially 18, 22 or 26, because I think it's important that we create competition each and every year. I said earlier on, we need yeah. to create competition that's not just for the elite players. Uh, so I, I, so that that was the that was the discussion, and I think um, we all concluded that emerging nations was a deserving enough concept to be floated off separately as as a, a competition, as it was in two thousand eighteen. It's slightly different for the women's because, as you just mentioned earlier, uh, the, first of all, there's only eight teams that are participating in the uh, women's World Cup as opposed to sixteen men's teams, and secondly, the rate of growth for women's rugby league has been so so quick over the last two or three years we felt that to wait until 2022 might be too long to engage with some of these nations so there was a slightly different discussion which was we do think there's imp- it's important that we run a women's emerging nations because there wasn't one running 18 yeah. uh, but then I, I think we'll be moving to a cycle where emerging nations stands out from um, from the no- from the full World Cups both women's men's and wheelchair so that's that's the thought process I, it's, it's, I think it's slightly unfair I'd say it was cancelled because it, it was never confirmed. But but that's the background narrative to it. I do like the idea of splitting it and giving them their own sort of time in the spotlight. I think that works quite well. Um, tell me a little bit about some of these developing and member nations and the sort of, I guess, the funding model of the IRL or what sort of funding or assistance does International Rugby League give to its members? Yeah, um, well, we try and support all members, but, but you know, like most organisations, we've got scarce resources and unlimited uh, unlimited calls on those resources so we do have to prioritize so if you are a full member uh, of the uh, federation or the, uh, we you are entitled to full member grants uh, they're currently at a rate of $25,000 per year but we've moved those uh, we're moving those onto a performance pay basis so there's um, basically instead of it just being presented there will be uh, conditions and those nations that have, have got those, when you asked earlier about what can we do to incentivise improved governance well this is one aspect of it you know we're looking at, you know, if you want to qualify for the full eligibility for grants, you need to demonstrate um, excellent governance you need to demonstrate that there is 
in-country development. You know, it can't just be uh, uh, nations that are actually have very little rugby league being played in the nation, and it just relies on uh, diaspora. Uh, and there needs to be you know, the, the, a junior structure to um, each nation. So we've we've got a full and complex criteria. Some people might argue it's too complex, but <laughs> we've got a full we've got a full and complex criteria that says if you are excellent in these areas, then you are eligible for the grant. Um, but that's for full members. For um, for the observers and affiliates, that's a separate that's a separate model. And where we we certainly don't have the same amount of resource to put into that. We do try and support them uh, on a case by case basis. And the biggest thing we can do actually is is support the creation of tournaments so we've just you know we've just seen the middle east africa tournament get away for the first time uh, and obviously there's the americas uh, next year so that's where we put resource into hosting and creating tournaments on the basis that the nations the biggest um lift up you can give to a nation is to give them a tournament to participate in because then the rest of it can take care of itself so you know we're not a rich world governing body. This is not, you know, World Rugby or the International Cricket Council or, or FIFA. So, you know, we are taking baby steps, but with the whole point about growing the commercial revenues and growing the structure of the major flagship blue ribbon events is to create the wealth to try and help more nations to play more rugby league. It makes sense. You know, like you say, it's not an endless pot of gold, and but we do have a lot of... Um, nations that need help so uh, it can be it's interesting you know and and the IRL can come up for some criticism from fans at times probably don't understand that um, but I'm glad you've been able to explain that it even put some some figures against the question I wasn't expecting figures in the answer so I really appreciate that mate um, another a really interesting question that I that I wanted to ask was uh, it's around refereeing um, and this year we've seen Australian referees refereeing kangaroos matches We've had an English referee flown out for the Lions tour. What's your stance on this? Like, should we have neutral referees? Is it something, a realistic goal for International Rugby League in the near future? I think it is an, a realistic aspiration. When and where we get to that, I think is um, a, a, a fair discussion. I think that if you were to ask most of the national federations that are playing in these competitions, uh, they want the best and most competent officials uh, uh, employed for the games that matter. I do think uh, the perception of the sport would be strengthened if there are more uh, if there is more examples of neutrality. I don't necessarily think that they, uh, that any um, referee uh, is prejudiced in any way, shape or form. So I don't actually think it's a fundamental flaw. I just think it's a perception issue. Uh, and one of the things, uh, one of the initiatives for 2020 is we will be recruiting a, the IRL will be recruiting a match officials manager who will henceforth take responsibility for the appointment of referees. So uh, rather than it being agreed by uh, you know a hybrid of the competing nations one way or the other uh, we will actually have an independent process so i think the point i would make is that i have full confidence in 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 all of the match officials that get provided from the national federations uh, but i do think as a sport um, would be strengthened from a perception perspective if we had more neutrality. The route into that is to grow more competent match officials, but importantly, to have a appointment system and a scrutiny system of performance that is independent of any nation. And that's why we're hiring a match officials manager over the course of the next two to three months to take responsibility for this whole 
uh, piece of work, this whole strand of work for International Rugby League going forward. It's great news. And I suppose as nations grow in their rugby league development, then officials will come from that as well. We saw on the weekend um, a Jamaican uh, touch judge uh, officiating in the um, USA Cook Islands uh, World Cup qualifier. So I, I thought that was really cool and hopefully a sign of things to come in the future. Um, f- I know we've gone over time, Nigel, so I thank you for that. I've just got a few more questions and I really want to ask some questions around, um, I guess, is there a danger of Europe falling too far behind the Pacific? We've seen you know, Tonga and Fiji and Papua New Guinea in particular really excel in the last couple of months in particular. Um, how can the International Rugby League and the Rugby League European Federation work to provide meaningful opposition for England in Europe and to ensure that the standards can be lifted so that they can compete in the Northern Hemisphere with the guys in the Southern Hemisphere? I think that's a very uh, astute observation. And I think that uh, it is a reflection, you know, of the domestic competition that is the NRL, that effectively they are pulling um, uh, players that are eligible for Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, PNG uh, into competitions that, 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 if you like, are of a high standard. Uh, I think it's a big problem uh, for the RFL. They have, to re- they have to kind of reconcile how do they get... Uh, local competition in Wales, Scotland, Ireland and France. We come back to France again uh, uh, because, of course, we can't afford England not to be competitive with the, you know, with the elite nations. And really, we need France to join them. Um, the, uh, the, it, it, this, is a, this is a multifaceted issue. It's not something that there's, there's no silver bullet or magic wand that can wave this through. I think it's, a, you know, I'm sure that Ralph Rimmer will be thinking about this a lot over his cornflakes every morning about how we get more I think it, and I think it is interesting because you know if you look at what happened in Australia 30 years ago or, or 35 years ago with the construction of origin and, and building up national team uh, building up uh, you know two domestic based um, structures that could provide elite competition and whether that's worked in the kangaroos favor I think there are lots of possible solutions but all of it is going to take a number of years. The, the, there's, there is no shortcut to the fact that at the end of the day, there are more high-quality rugby league athletes that come from Polynesian islands or from through the playing structures in New Zealand. And we have to work out how to replicate that in, in the Celtic nations in particular. And significantly, what more can we do to assist France to make sure that they can provide local opposition in the same way New Zealand provide local opposition uh, to uh, to Australia each and every year, you know whether or not that is a, um, a a staple, and I think I think it probably should be, but it's back to what does the IRL take responsibility for? You know we can't cure everything. You know at the end of the day we'll end up being busy fools if we try and solve all the problems for international rugby league, and and some of the nations have to take responsibility for their own performance programs. Uh, and in defence of the Northern Hemisphere, you know there there are French teams in the competition structure for uh, the RFL and there are two Welsh teams in the competition structure for the RFL. So there is an access to professional rugby league that is there. Um, But I think it's slightly deeper than that. But it needs a considerable amount of investment and some honesty about, about where players come from for instance to play for Catalan or whatever else you know um, but I do think it's a, you know I do think that we should celebrate the fact that the area Pacific is 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 wonderfully strong at the moment and getting stronger with every passing year uh, and that as far as the IRL are concerned you know where we're seeking to get to is to have eight fully fledged contenders 
Champions so that when the quarterfinals of the World Cups come around, that they are all good contests. I love that answer. And, you know, we should be celebrating the Pacific, not crying about the Great Britain Lions, for example, because, you know, it's 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 fantastic to see the likes of Papua New Guinea, a rugby league mad nation, getting a win like they did over the weekend. And obviously Great Britain or England and the home nations have a lot of work to do. But I'd like to think that we aren't too far off a world where or a World Cup where we can see, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Tonga, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, England, France, Wales, and maybe even someone like Jamaica really been able to compete. I hope we're only decades away from something like that. And uh, Nigel, I really appreciate all the work that you and your team have done. I also appreciate you told me you'd give me an hour of your time uh, for this podcast. We've been speaking for about an hour and a half. So I'm sure the listeners and the fans of this show and International Rugby League uh, would be very appreciative that you've took the time to answer their questions. So a big thank you and good luck for 2020. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mate, before I let you go, is there any message that you'd like to give the listeners or, or anything that you'd like to sort of, anyone you'd like to give a shout out to or anything like that? Oh, listen, to, to, everybody, to everybody who has taken the trouble to write questions, I'm very grateful because it demonstrates the depth and love for International Rugby League. Uh, I think we all, if we close our eyes, would know what good looks like. I think it's a lot like um, what you just articulated a couple of seconds ago. I think International Rugby League is the the, the great uh, unlocked potential for our sport and I'm sure that with goodwill and sincerity that we can move it on uh, a considerable pace. We've, I think we've already made some progress but there's more to do and uh, to everybody who supports Rugby League, thank you very much indeed. Nigel Wood, it's been a pleasure mate. Thank you, thank you. Well, what a great chat and what a great way to close the International Rugby League podcast series with the big boss, Mr. Nigel Wood. I certainly learned a lot from that chat and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Guys, I promise you we talk world rankings. So the world rankings, uh, they haven't been released at the time of recording, but by the time you hear this, they would have been. And you may be shocked to have seen that New Zealand are now ranked world number one. Uh, Australian kangaroos are world number two. England still in number three and Tonga are still in number four. So for full details, check out the International Rugby League website uh, to see the full rankings for men's and women's. But as I say, that New Zealand one, bit of a shock for most of you, I'm sure. Now, I want to explain, I guess, how the rankings are tallied, uh, just to give you guys a little bit of an understanding. So they're tallied by an independent entity. Uh, the numbers and formulas can be quite complex, but there are four simple points which are important to understand. So rankings, they take into account three years of international games. So it's a three-year cycle. Um, higher weighted matches earn greater value than lower weighted matches. So for example, World Cup games are more valuable than bilateral tests, but value does decline over time. So if a World Cup was three years ago, then it's not worth as much as it was if the World Cup was more recently. Um, thirdly, obviously, the more games a nation plays, the more points they can earn, but it's important to understand that the number of points you can earn is dependent on the standard of your competition. So for example, beating Australia has a greater value than beating France. And finally, only international rugby league sanctioned match 
sanctioned matches count. So matches between member nations, but also, uh, for example, when Fiji plays the Australians, uh, the Australians Prime Minister's 13, then those matches don't count. It's also important to note that the Tongan Invitational 13 side, that counted as Tonga this year. And for Great Britain, well, a percentage of points goes to the home nations, depending on how many players represented them in Great Brit- in the Great Britain side. So uh, realistically, most of the Great Britain points uh, would have went to England or lack thereof points, I should say. Well, that's the explanation of how the world rankings works. And I hope I've been able to shed some light on that for all of you. And that is full time on the final episode of the International Rugby League podcast brought to you by Chasing Kangaroos. A big thank you to the team at the International Rugby League for giving me the opportunity to host this podcast. Also, thanks to all of our guests this season. Uh, And the most important thank you of all goes to you, the listeners, for joining us each week. And you never know, we might be back to cover the international season in 2020 but until then you can still catch me with similar content on the chasing kangaroos podcast i'm planning on recording a couple more episodes before christmas and you'll find them in exactly the same place that you listen to this podcast just hit subscribe if you haven't already and it will automatically change over in the next week or two make sure you're following international rugby league and chasing kangaroos on social media i'll include links in our show notes I'm Michael Carboni. It's been amazing bringing you some insights from International Rugby League this season. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced as a collaboration with International Rugby League, formerly known as the Rugby League International Federation, and Chasing Kangaroos. I'm Michael Carboni, and this episode was mixed and recorded by Paul Murchison. 